here's what I want to start us thinking about. We all are looking for someone who is worth following. Someone so great that they cause us to abandon ourselves, abandon our own self-interest for the sake of something that is so much greater than ourselves. Someone who takes our efforts and multiplies them in the world for good, and someone who will change us just by being in their presence. And so often we are looking for someone or something to follow, and we are settling over and over and over again. We're settling for this decent little life and these decent little self-improvements when God wants so much more for us. So for the last two weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Good Shepherd. And what we've said is that we are like sheep in a sheep's pen. And our great desire is to get outside of that gate into the green pastures, which is the world and the life we, are, we long for, we're waiting for. It's the life that we are made for. And we're waiting for the shepherd to come to open the gate so that he might let us out into that world and the life that we are made for. We are searching for him. And today, what we're going to do is look at the strange period between our discovery of this great shepherd and us walking into the green pastures, which is the world and the life we're made for. We're going to look at the time in between. And it's a strange time, and it's a time where we are journeying towards the green pastures, but we are not there yet. And along the way, something is happening to us. The good shepherd is doing something to us. He's doing something in our hearts, and here's what he's doing. He's starting, he's kindling, he's beginning a revolution in our heart. We're in John 10, going to read verses 22 through 42. All right, it's up on the screen if you want to follow along. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jews picked up the stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. 
He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now look here, here's what they did. They saw Jesus, and they formed a circle around him. And they said, tell us, are you the Christ? A Christian, to be a Christian means you are a Christ follower. The word Christ, this is not Jesus' last name. His, name is not, his last name is not Christ, it's a title. It is Jesus the Christ. So what is the Christ? What, what is the Christ that his name, that his title, the Christ, what does that mean? It means he's the anointed one. It means he's the chosen one. It means he's the one who has come to make everything the way it ought to be. He's the one that the Jewish people, the Old Testament, were looking for over and over and over again who was going to come and make them right and make the world right and make every one of their dreams come true in him. They were looking, the Jewish people were looking for the Christ, but their expectations were too low. They thought Christ was going to come about and bring about, the Christ was going to come bring a revolution, a political revolution. But he's come to do so much more than that. Their thinking was too small. The Christ would come to bring about a revolution in the hearts of people and then take those people. And as he's leading them into the green pastures, he'd be giving them a revolution of the heart and one day a revolution into the world that they are made for. So, what is the Christ that we are supposed to be looking for? Who is he that we are supposed to be looking for? And is he someone worth following? And the answer is, oh yes, he most certainly is worth following. The Christ is unique. He is a king, but he's unique from all other kings. And here's the way. He's 100% a king but he's also 100% a shepherd and also 100% a rescuing servant. And if you say those numbers don't add up, then you are missing everything about the Christ. He's breaking all of the rules. All the mathematical equations don't make sense in him until you meet him and you're like, oh, this, this, is, this is it, I understand now. So here's how I want you to think about the Christ. He is the good shepherd, he's the... He's the king of all kings who is a shepherd who has come to give his life for you, to rescue you, and to serve you. And anything less falls short of who you are meant to follow. And this kind of leader is so far outside of what we typically imagine when we think of a leader. And that's why the Jewish people missed him. He comes, listen, he comes as a king in disguise. Why? So he could sneak into your heart. He comes to serve, and he comes as a lowly shepherd. You know, during this time, one of the lowliest occupations you could have as a shepherd, and the king of kings comes into the world, and he refers to himself as this lowly shepherd. That tells us so much about our cosmic king. And he comes not as we would expect him to come. But that's the God of Christianity. So why? Why does he do this? So that 
he might win over your heart, not by taking power, but by giving all of his power away. By coming to be a servant. He doesn't come and say, bend the knee. He doesn't do that. He comes to pursue you and serve you in order to win you over, to pull you by your affections. You don't follow him out of a posture of fear, but out of a posture of love and affection towards him that he is pulling you with. He's giving you grace after grace after grace. While kings are typically pursued and served, he comes to pursue you and serve you. While kings typically stand in power, he exchanged his power for the cross. And while kings typically have a golden crown, he wears a crown of thorns. He holds all the power in the cosmos in his hands, yet he drops all of it to win your affections, to come into your heart. And so he might pull you, pull you by your affections. This, this is the only kind of king that you will follow for all of eternity and all other kings will eventually bore you. But he will captivate you for eternity because he's the kind of king that comes into the world and wins over his enemies. He pursues his enemies. The Bible refers to Christians as once being enemies of God. And so what he does is he comes and pursues his enemies over and over and over and wins them over, not by force, but by raining love down upon them until they say, ah, I've been missing it. I've been calling him my enemy, maybe not verbally, but in my heart I have, and now I've been won over by him. While you might follow others out of fear, He's the only one you follow by your affections. This kind of king, at least. And it's not, listen, it's not that he isn't the most dangerous, the most powerful, the most to be feared of all, king in the cosmos. He is that, but he lays it all down because he wants your heart. I realized something yesterday. You know the verse, there's a Bible verse that says the beginning, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, I realized that's just the beginning of what wisdom is, fear of God. So here's what happens. You meet the king, and you see his power. You see his justice, and you're aware that you are not measuring up to who he's called you to be. And you're like, wow, I'm scared. But then you see him as the shepherd, and your wisdom grows because now you have found grace, and that's how he wins you over. He's the only king who does something like that. And this is why Jesus is called the lion and the lamb. He's the lamb in that you know, we're sheep. He's coming into our lives. He's coming into the world. He's putting on sheep's clothing. He's becoming like us to win over your heart. But if anything stands in the way between you and him, the deep growl of the lion shakes whatever is standing between you and him because he's coming for you and he's going to get you and there's nothing that's going to stop him. So in, the, in this movie, The Knight's Tale, and it's been a little bit since I've seen it, so I might miss this, a little, mess this up a little bit. We'll see what happens. So in the movie, A Knight's Tale, there's this knight and he's born of lowly birth and it has, stop laughing at my movie references. Okay, 
I got you, man. Okay, so in the knight's tale, this, there's this knight. And if I mess this up, Reed, you can tell me. So in the knight's tale, he comes, and there's this guy who wants so badly to be a knight. But he's of lowly birth, and he doesn't have the papers. And so he makes up a name. He makes up the name of a knight. And he starts living the life of a knight. He starts fighting these battles that a knight would fight. But then people find out that he lied. And so they take him and they put him in this, what's called a pillory. You know what a pillory is? It's when they put that wooden thing that they used to do, they put your head through it and your arms through it and you're in public like this. Okay, they put him in a pillory and they're mocking him and they're throwing stuff at him. Then all of a sudden, some guys come and they're dressed in these black robes and they've got hoods over their heads. And as they're throwing, they step in between them and this guy takes the hood off. And when he takes the hood off, they immediately stop throwing things and they sit back in awe because, you know why? It's the king. And then the king releases him, but because he's the king, he's got the power to do this, he knights that false knight and makes everything that he wanted happen and come true. Okay, how much love and affection will that knight have towards that king? And now how much more affection ought we have for our king who didn't just rescue us from the pillory, but what he does is he goes to the pillory himself, gives his life there and the pillory for us so we can be set free from it. But he wins us over that way. But it's not just that he's giving us his life. It's that by doing that, by giving his life, he pulls our affections towards him. So when the shepherd king does this for you, he wins you over the same way that knight was won over. He's giving you, starting, kindling a revolution in your heart that starts with him giving you a gift. I mean, this is, this is like the story of Cinderella, except... Here's what happens. Instead of it's a fairy godmother, right? Instead of a fairy godmother coming and giving Cinderella the shoes and the carriage and the clothing and all that stuff, instead of that happening, the prince leaves the castle and comes and wears the clothing of Cinderella, becomes like Cinderella, gets into Cinderella's world, and then saves her from the, the evil stepsisters and stepmother. It's not that you have to get all dressed up to go meet the king. It's that the king takes off all of his kingly clothing and comes to get you. And then he rescues you out and he brings you into the castle and gives you the life that you have always wanted. So we see in Isaiah 53 that the, he is, this is talking about the lamb. Listen, this is talking about the lamb that will be led to the slaughter. Now, this is Jesus coming into our world, becoming just like us, just like the prince putting on the clothing of Cinderella. He comes into our world, becomes just like us, and he becomes the lamb who gives us the gift of his life, and he exchanges places with us where the cross was meant for us. He goes to it and makes it his own so we can be freed from that cross. And then as the king, after he goes to the cross, he is the king. So he doesn't just die our death, but then he gives us the life in the castle because he's the king. He's got the power to do it. And if you haven't started following him yet, there is no one like him. You will be waiting forever 
for someone to come, and no one will come because he's the greatest thing that has ever happened to our world, to the, to the cosmos, to eternity. But here's something you have to realize. Our journey in this life is a journey towards the castle, but we aren't there yet. It's a journey towards the green pasture. He's told us where he's taken us. He's showed us all the reasons why we ought to follow him, but we are not there yet. Jesus says here, my sheep will follow me. Now listen, many people say, if you're a Christian, one of your biggest problems is this. You have an over-realized eschatology. Let me tell you what that means. So here's what you're living. You're living your life thinking you ought to be in the castle and you're wondering why you're not there yet. And the reason is because you have a journey that you're on. Eschatology means the end, the end of the story. And you want the end of the story to be now, but you are not at the end of the story. Your story is right in the middle. In this grand story where God is coming in to rescue us, it's right in the middle of playing out. The end has not yet come. And so you started following the king and you're wondering why things are not the way that you want them to be. And the reason is because you're not yet there in the castle. You're not yet in the green pastures. You have started the journey, but you're right in the middle of it. The shepherd has come. He's rescued you from the wolf of death, but your journey is right in the middle. You've over-realized the end of the story. You're in chapter 3, but you want to be in chapter 7, but you're not there yet. So when, I take, when we take our kids to Disney World, where Cinderella's castle is, um, when we take them there, we don't tell them that we're taking them there until right before we get there. Because if we told them ahead of time this is what happens. As soon as we get on the turnpike, Cruz, my oldest, says, how many more minutes? And I say, a hundred more minutes. And he says, okay. How many more minutes? 99 more minutes. How many more minutes? It's only been like 30 seconds now. Like, we're still at 99. Okay, how many more minutes? 98. And so this kind of keeps going on, and we're like going crazy. We're pulling our hair out. We're like, what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to throw some empty threats out there. So we say, you know what? If you keep asking, we're going to have to turn around. So it was quiet. And we're like, oh, it's quiet. And then he says, Daddy, I want to ask you something. <laughs> okay. Okay, but ask me, but it better not be about when we're getting to Disney. Quiet. I'm like, okay. Quiet. And you turn around. And he's like holding tears back. And now I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be a pushover. I'm going to say, okay, wh what? What do you want? What do you want? How many more minutes? Like 92 now, and this just starts all over again. Um, so some of you are like this. You want to be at Disney where the castle is, but you are in the car ride there, and you're not there yet, and you're all cramped up, and you're like, I got to stand up, I got to move around, but that's the journey towards the castle right now. And you started following Jesus and you do. I mean, if you know this about the story of the Israelites, they are, they are freed and they start their journey to the promised land, but they're in the middle in the wilderness and they're grumbling. They're frustrated. And that's like how we are. We're on our way there, 
but things are not going the way we want. And we're like these sheep, and we're like, man, I just wish I was back in the sheep's pen because that was a lot more comfortable. That was a lot easier. And here's what hap- is going on. He's starting a revolution in your heart, and he's using all the things along the journey to kindle this revolution that's happening in your heart. But it's a hard journey. It's like through cold mountains and this hard terrain and these rough seas. And so things are going on that are difficult, but the difficult things are there, and the king is there, and he's starting a revolution in your heart using the hard things that you are walking through to start this revolution and keep it going. He's fanning it into flame, and he's using all the things that you're going through to do it. The reason you're frustrated is because you think Jesus is just a king who's going to bring you right into the castle. But he's not. He's a shepherd too. He's a shepherd, and he's working on your heart along the way. And so while the king builds his kingdom outside of you, listen, the king builds the kingdom outside of you, listen, listen, the shepherd builds the kingdom in your heart. Now, some of you are the opposite. You don't have an over-realized eschatology. You have an under-realized eschatology. You think Christianity is not really about the power of a king who has come. You're just mainly seeing Christianity as this tender shepherd, this God who is full of grace. And so there's sin in your life, but you aren't going to him as a king, so it just kind of stays there. It's not moving. You're not changing. You're just seeing him as a tender shepherd. And some of you, you're a Christian, but you're not changing because you're not going to him like he's a king. I'm going to tell you this. Christianity is confusing. And here's why. Here's what happens. We go to the king, and he says, hey, Live the way you're supposed to live in the kingdom. Stop doing what you're doing. There's a way, a better way for you to live. And we say, and he says, stop sinning. And then the shepherd comes up and he's like, it's okay. He wraps us up. He said, you're forgiven. I've given my life for you. And we're like, oh, good. And the king says, stop sinning. And we're like, wait, what? So am I forgiven? Do I need to stop sinning? What do I need to do? And the answer is both. The answer is rest in the grace that you have, but at the same time, pursue the life that he has called you to live. The king says this, and here's what's going on. It's the unique combination. This is so unique. The unique combination of the king being a shepherd And that combination fans into flame this revolution in your heart. And as we follow, as we follow the shepherd king, he starts doing something. He starts confronting the brutal facts about us with us. So what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Well, you got to look at what won you over. He won over your affection. So that means to follow him means to love him. Okay, so what does it mean to love him? The Bible says, if you love, if you, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll live the way that I'm calling you to live. So that's what it means to love him. You say, okay. Sometimes, you probably already know this, but one of the biggest problems for relationships is communication. There's a lot of communication problems. Um, And what happens is we tend to not communicate what we want and what we need from the people that we love. And so, okay, so, and here's what happens. Okay, so you're married, 
and you say, okay, well, they love me, so they should know what I want and need from them. So I'm not going to tell them what I want and need. They need to figure it out themselves. That is completely unreasonable. Listen, you have to talk to people about what you want and what you need, or else there is communication breakdown. That's just not with your spouse. That's with your friends. That's with just the people that you love, communicating what you need from them. Now, listen, God will give no room for communication problems. He tells us exactly what he wants and needs from us, and he even tells us what we want and need from him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the way we're wired, and he knows what we want and what we need from him. So he's telling us what he wants and needs from us, and if we take an honest look, first, first do this. Take an honest look at the Bible, and you'll see that if the way the Bible is calling you to live, if that is adopted, it will bring about flourishing in a society, more so than any other religion does. But, if you also take an honest look at what the Bible's saying, and you take an honest look at your life, you're going to see that you have a really hard time living the way the Bible's calling you to live, and even living the way you want to live yourself. In fact, you will see that no matter how badly you want to live the way God's calling you to live, you struggle to do it, and here's why. There's a war that's going on inside of you. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> okay, come on back, come on back. Okay, I love that guy. So, okay, listen. So there is a war that's going on inside of you, okay? And, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> I can't get out of that, man. Okay, Hold on, let me find my spot here. All right, so there's a war. Go, amen, that was an amen, thank you. So um, there is a war, and I still can't find my spot. Uh, there it is, I got it, I got it, I got it. So there is a war, and no, I don't have it. Hold on, yeah, no, I, no, I thank you, Eric. Um, all right, got it. I know, you are listening. So if we're willing to take an honest look at ourselves, we're going to see that there's a war happening inside of us. And there's a war happening because the shepherd has come and started a revolution. And it's us wanting to follow him, but it's also us wanting to run away from him all at the same time. And if we're going to take an honest look at ourselves, we can't really love others the way we want to, the way we know God's calling us to, and we can't really live our lives the way we know we ought to be living them in the way we want to live them, in the way God's called, them to, called us to live. So every time we don't live the way God's calling us to live, here's what it is. It's us running from the shepherd. We're running away from him. He's saying, follow me. And when we don't live the way he's called us to live, it's us running from him. We don't want him. We want to run away from him. And here's what happens to the Christian. Here's what happens to the Christian. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the weight of the things that we're doing. We feel the weight that we are running from him. And we start to question our faith. We start to question our salvation. And we say, how could I do this to my God who has done this all for me? How can I live the life I'm living? How could I be running from him after he has pursued me over and over and over again? 
and we start questioning everything about our faith, and then here's what happens. Here's what, Christian, listen to this. Here's what happens to you. You remember something about the shepherd, something that he says. Look at what he says. He says, nothing will be able to snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because he's the king. He's the shepherd who's pursued you. He's laid his hands on you, and he's the king, so he's got the power, and he's never letting you go. And once our affections have been placed upon him, he has started that revolution in your heart, and he's not going to let it stop, and he's never going to let you go. No matter what you do, you could be angry at him. You could yell at him. You could drop the F-bomb at him in frustration, though I wouldn't recommend it. You could cuss in church. That's probably never happened here. You could be angry at him. Um, You could feel like you hate him and are so mad at him. But you know what? In your temper tantrum of the soul, He will not let you go because he's the king. Nothing is going to stand between you and him, neither neither life nor death nor angels or demons nor Satan himself nor your lack of faith nor your lack of love for him nor your inability to live the way he's called you to live. Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to separate you from him if he's got his hand on you. How? Because he has bound himself to you. How did he do it? Our text says that he, Jesus, he and the Father are one. And by the way, we see here yet another claim of Christ as being God. I mean, they're ready to kill him because of his claims here. We see this again, but yet here, so so what's going on is we see the Son and the Father referenced here. The two being one, one. They are one, one God. Two persons, one God. Though there's three in the Trinity, we're talking about the two right now. And they're one. They're absolutely united. They've never been separated. Never have been, never will be. All, always united together as one, except for one moment in divine history, they're split apart. They are ripped from each other. There was a cataclysmic shift in the way the world operates. And if you will believe this is true, there will be a cataclysmic shift that happens in your heart. If you will understand the magnitude of the claim that I'm about to make, it will change everything for you. Here's the shift that starts the revolution. On the cross, the two are ripped into one, from from each other, not into one, away from each other. Here's why. The bond is broken so that the shepherd could come and get you. He was ripped from his father to come and get you, to pursue you. And what he does as the shepherd and the king, as he takes hold of you. He doesn't let you go. And then, as the king, he rises from the ashes of death and is bound back to his father, then meaning you are now bound to the eternal father. And here's what that then means for you. You are an eternal 
son or daughter of the eternal father in his castle forever. And you are the bride of the king. You have now become the eternal Cinderella. And if you will go to him, it will start a revolution in your heart. And if you've already gone to him, go to him over and over and over again. Remind yourself of that truth over and over and over again because it will kindle and it will fan into flame the revolution that has already begun. Let's pray.